we're finishing this series in my feelings, um, and we're just talking through these different feelings that we kind of um, that we wrestle with and, and work through. Um, how, how many of you were here last week? Yeah, I, I'm really bummed that I missed it because Connor taught and I heard he did awesome. Um, but you can always go to our website, which is the number seven t- and then ten spelled out, which is T E N for some of you, uh, .org, and uh, you can see these messages, and and you can kind of track with us, but I was um, in Italy at a church thing. You don't care, so, but I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry that I missed it, and I'm sorry that I missed Connor. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Genesis. Genesis um, chapter 3 is where we're going to start tonight. Genesis chapter 3, and then... um, We'll, uh, we'll get into it. Let me, let me just pray for us real quick. God would just help us the rest of our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. God, I thank you for your word, um, God, that is living and active. And God, I'm praying that tonight we experience um, just your, your living word to us. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And Holy Spirit, would you move in this place and in our hearts and our minds with freedom with power, God, I'm asking that we would um, that we would know your presence, that we would know your power tonight in our lives. So, would you would you help me? Would you control me? Would you give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought? And God, would you just bring um, divine interruptions tonight? And um, God, would we would we not be a people who just hear the word, but it doesn't do anything to us, or we don't do anything with it? And God, tonight, I'm, I'm asking for just faith for us to believe that what you say is true. Um, God, because I, I know that in this room, we have doubts, we have fears. God, we have excuses on why this stuff can't apply to, to me, to us. And so, God, I'm just praying tonight that your truth just brings freedom to us. Um, so God, would you, would you do what only you can do tonight? Jesus, I love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Um, so this is the beginning, and this is the true story of the world. God's created heavens and earth. God's created this incredible garden paradise, um, and he's put man and woman in it. And at the end of chapter 2, it says uh, that Adam and his wife Eve, they're naked, and they felt no shame. And then chapter 3 says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That was the only stipulation that God had really put on Adam and Eve. He, he wanted them to enjoy one another. He wanted them to enjoy everything that he had made, and he wanted them to enjoy him. And the scripture says that they, they walked with God in the cool of the day, that Adam and Eve had this type of intimacy with God and intimacy with each other and intimacy with creation. And the serpent challenges all of that when he, when he comes to the woman. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may, not, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But, when, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, he says, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man essentially says, well, you know, it was this woman that you put in here. Um, and the woman says, well, it was the serpent. And the serpent's like, yeah, I did it. But what's introduced here um, in Genesis chapter 3 is, is, is something that we experience. And if you have experienced, you know what a powerful force it can be in your life. And it's shame. Uh, shame is something that makes us feel like we're not worthy. Shame has the power to make us feel like we are damaged beyond repair. It, it, it's this feeling that puts um, us in a state of being less. Ultimately, like Adam and Eve in the garden, it's the, the feeling that makes us feel like we need to hide from God. And we, we, we try to hide from other people. We try to hide behind layers and, and filters or try to hide behind maybe our accomplishments or things that we, things that we own um, so that no one will fully know us and what we've done or what's been done to us. And shame, for many of us, it dominates our story. Day by day, it's the thing that we're, that we're chained to, and it's the thing that has us chained. When God created the earth, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and it says that they are both naked and they have no shame. It's a very interesting description of paradise. So when the Bible's describing paradise, yes, it's, it's beautiful, there's plants, there's animals, everything is lush, but the ultimate description is that it's a place for man and woman to dwell with no shame. But Adam and Eve, they make this disastrous choice with massive consequences, and they, along with all creation, they fall apart as a result of their choices and guilt and shame into the story of their lives and into the story of our lives. One day they are naked with no shame, and the next day they're hiding from God, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Because guilt and shame are very much a part of their story. It's interesting to me as I kind of think about this. A lot of times when you see paintings or you see artwork that's about this scene that I just read, and, and, and you see the, 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 the outfits that they kind of make for themselves, like what, what are the parts that they cover? Adam and Eve, they, they take the fig leaves and they cover what parts of their body? I'm not just trying to make it awkward for everybody. I'm really going somewhere. They cover the, their private parts, right? Okay, someone say that? No, I said it. You can say that in church. So that's what they cover. Now, now why? Because when they sinned, they didn't sin with those parts of their body. They, they sin with their mouth. They eat. Maybe their hands. They, they use their hands to feed themselves. So, so why is it that we cover up those parts? You see, most of our shame... and. No one wants to be vulnerable enough to talk about this, and I get it. But most of our shame, it comes from some sort of sexual sin in our past, some kind of brokenness in that area. And I think Satan attacks that because he wants to, he wants to ultimately, this is what we're going to see tonight with shame. Shame twists our identity. Satan goes after our identity. He, so the, when, he, when he goes after those parts of us, it's the most intrinsic part of who we are. He goes after that. It's the most intimate way that we can connect with one another. And he goes after that and tries to break that down. 
And then you see the way that he breaks down the relationship between man and God. So Satan, he goes at that identity because he, he wants there to be a disruption between you and yourself. He wants there to be a breakdown between you and one another and then ultimately you and God. And God comes around, they hide. They feel unworthy to be connected to God. It's very interesting how that's their response in the garden. It's our response today. But even in the garden, God had started this rescue plan. Even then, God was working for redemption and renewal, just like he is today. And, and if you miss anything else, this is, this is what God is doing in the world. He wants to bring you home to the city of God, to reconnect you to his purposes, and he wants to give you back everything in your life that the enemy has stolen from you. We see this in the garden, and we see it today, that God is saying, look, you can live free from guilt and shame. Guilt and shame do not have to be a part of your story for one more day. That's the word tonight, that guilt and shame do not have to be part of your story for one more day. Now, before we get too far down the road here, let's talk about what shame and guilt are, because a lot of times they get lumped together. They, they get kind of put into the same basket, but they're actually a little bit different. Now, guilt is, is normal. Guilt is a normal, healthy emotion that lets you know when you have violated your sense of right and wrong. It's given to us by God. Guilt prompts you to clean up your messes and to seek forgiveness. There's a good part of, of guilt. Guilt is the position of being accountable for our sin or our rebellion against God and our shortfalls. It, it's a legal term. In other words, in a framework of, of justice, you have to take responsibility and accountability for decisions and choices that you make that fall short of the standard of God. That's how guilt is decided. It's like a verdict, and, and you're, you're guilty. Now, shame, on the other hand, is a process of being defined by our sin or our, by our rebellion and the ways that we fall short. Shame is the intensely painful experience of believing that we are flawed and that we are unworthy of love and belonging. It's the experience of seeing ourselves having failed, living up to an idealized version of ourselves, right? So you don't you understand what I'm saying there? It's, the, it's that experience, that feeling that you have, that process that you have. When you look back at your life, you're like, oh, I, I wish I would have never done that. And because I've done that, now I'm this person. And because I've done that, I'll never get to be the person that I wanted to be. Or maybe you think because I've done that, I'll never get to be with the person that I wanted to be with. Shame is a feeling or an experience, not just a set of thoughts of beliefs. It's a feeling that there's something wrong with me. That's what shame is constantly saying to you. There's something wrong with you. You're broken. You're not worthy of being loved. You're not worthy of belonging. And when we're in shame, we feel that we are uniquely flawed, that we're unworthy of love from God, from others, and for ourselves. So, so are you seeing the difference? Just before we go any further here, guilt is a positional thing. Because of my sin, I'm in a position of being accountable and responsible for my decisions. Shame is saying, yes, legally I'm guilty, but now I'm taking my sin and I'm in the process of shaping my identity around my failure. I'm, I'm shaping who I am based on how I've failed or how someone has sinned against me. 
Guilt often prompts you to ask for or receive forgiveness. Shame prompts you to hide from God and to others. Shame refuses to be forgiven. You cling to your unworthiness. You reject the message of the gospel that in Christ there is no condemnation, meaning you're not condemned, that we are called to love others as we love ourselves. So one is a legal state. One's a positional thing, and the other is an emotional, mental state. We're going to look at both separate but with one solution so that you can find a pathway to freedom. And here's the pathway to freedom. I'll just give this to you right now. The, the pathway to freedom from both guilt and shame is that our story, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a story of grace. If you want to find freedom from guilt and shame, which are very real, I'm not, so don't think I'm just up here saying like, well, hey, just if you feel guilty, get over it. If you feel shame, get over it. No, no. This message, I picked this topic. This is deeply, deeply personal to me. It's the same reason I asked Connor to, to teach on anxiety and Shannon anger. These are things that we all, they're universal. We all experience it. But for me, this is deeply, deeply personal. But the pathway to freedom from both guilt and shame is not just you trying harder, doing better. It's, it's grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's what Jed just led us in singing. The first thing that we're going to see about grace is that grace cancels guilt. Grace cancels guilt. Grace is not just this like weak, powerless concept. It's not just a word that we just throw around uh, in, in like church settings or, or whatever. Grace ultimately destroys the power of sin in our lives. Grace cancels guilt. So how, so how do we get out of the legal mess that we are in because of our sin? The grace of God moves in, and through the story and the work of Jesus, it sets us free. And we actually see this start in, in, in Isaiah in the Old Testament. So if you have, flip over to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and some people are like, ah, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. Well, well you, you should, because that God, the God in the Old Testament, is being very patient with people who continue to rebel against him and fall short of the standard for his, for his standard of their lives. He's preparing a way day by day and year after year, century after century, for this grace that we celebrate. And in Isaiah chapter 6, it's amazing because we're going to see how God wants to work to take your guilt away, the position that you rightly deserve to be in because of what you've done, because of decisions that you've made, because of your rebellion against the holy God. It's the position that you deserve to be in. It's the position that you have earned. You've earned this guilt. And Isaiah chapter 6 shows us how God wants to deal with that. So look at verse 1. Now, this is, this is going to seem kind of weird to, to some of you, um, but Isaiah, who's a prophet, which just simply just means he's a spokesperson, he's a mouthpiece for God, he's given a vision of heaven, of the dwelling place of God. And it says this, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, so just think like kind of angelic beings, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two, wing, two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. When, when you see that in the scripture, when you see it, holy, 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 what they're trying to describe is the total uniqueness of or other thanness of. They're trying to describe, look, God is unlike anything, anywhere, ever. 
That's the power of when, they, when they're singing holy, holy, holy um, in, in, the, in the temple. Is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth, is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, their doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is a, like a crazy, crazy scene that Isaiah is seeing. And his response in verse 5 is perfect. He says, woe to me. He, he knows. He's like, I'm done. I'm toast. I'm exterminated. This is it. This is how it ends for me. Woe, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The prophet Isaiah sees the Lord. He has a vision of heaven when he sees the holiness of God. Again, the uniqueness, the set-apartness, the other-thanness of God, and, and the beauty of God. When he sees this vision of heaven, he's like, whoa. I'm done. This is it. This is the end for me. And immediately he cries out. He says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And what Isaiah is showing us is the way that we get guilt canceled in our lives is simply this. Listen to this. The way that you get guilt canceled in your lives is this. We understand that there is a finished work of Jesus on the cross, and we step in to receive that finished work by an act of repentance. Repentance is a word that just simply means to turn away from and to turn towards something else, which is where we say, repentance is where we say, I've fallen short of God's holy standard. There's a standard that God has, and, and the chasm between the standard of what God has and, the, and how I live my life, light years unbreachable chasm. I cannot cross it. The gap is massive. It's too huge. There's nothing that I can do. I'm undone. I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I've fallen short of what God intended and what God has as his best for my life. I admit that. I take responsibility for it. And I realize that I'm accountable for my choices and my sin and my rebellion before Almighty God. And Isaiah gets it. He's like, I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, and I have no idea how this is going to get reconciled. I don't know how this is going to get fixed. And immediately, God goes into motion with the rescue plan and starts moving towards a repentant Isaiah. You see, repentance is not a negative thing. It's a doorway to where God comes to us through grace, by grace, to do what none of us could do in and of ourselves. Look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's been a payment made on your behalf. Your, your guilty sentence has been removed. So here's Isaiah, and he's feeling like he's just finished before God. And, and not only is, is he not finished, but his repentance opens a doorway for, for, for the restoring power of God. The angel arrives not to exterminate Isaiah, but to exterminate the guilt. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is, a, is atoned for. 
And we fast forward to the New Testament and we see another live burning coal that comes down from heaven who was the Holy One, who is Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, pure and holy and righteous, gives his life to bring freedom so that he could say to everyone who acknowledges their hopelessness and their helplessness and bridging the gap from their sin to God's holiness, and he could say to them what the angel says to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. How does he do that? There's this great exchange that happens in the courthouse of heaven where we who were guilty and accountable for our sinful choices and Jesus who is innocent and pure, God took our guilt and our sin and he put it on Jesus so that he could put his righteousness or his rightness and innocence and transfer it to our account so that we could justly be free by a holy and righteous God and we could walk free of guilt with all of our debt paid for by the finished work of Jesus. You see, there had to be this legal transaction. There had to be something that would stand up in the court of law under the scrutiny of the righteousness and justice of God. That's why Jesus was the only one who could come to bear the guilt and the sin and the shame. And therefore, God could declare that you and I are guilt-free. Because of what Jesus had done, you and I are forgiven. We walk free, and we enter into brand new life. First John uh, 1.9 talks about this. John's writing to these new believers, and he's trying to explain the power of the gospel to them. And he says, if we confess our sins, confess is a word that just means I'm going to say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. God says it's rebellion that leads you to death. I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to say my sin, that's exactly what it is. We confess our sins. He's faithful, and he's just. He's true, he's right. It's the right thing for him to do. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So our confession, our acknowledgement of being accountable for our sin, our admission, it frees up God and he moves towards us in the finished work of Christ and he cancels our guilt. Um, Connor started tonight by explaining that to us. I don't know if you heard him, what he was saying, but but he, he's like, look, this is why we worship. This is why we sing. It's not because we're not creative enough to figure out something else to do at the beginning of our gatherings, although that's true. Um, he said, we, we worship because we can say that we are people, because of the finished work of Jesus, we have had our guilt, our debt canceled and paid in full by the work of Jesus. That's why we sing. That's why we gather so that those of us who know that, believe that, walk in that, breathe that in and out, we're reminded of that and we come together and celebrate that in the middle of our week. And it's also for those of you who you don't know that story or that's not the story of your life at this point. And so you might hear it and you might come to believe that that's the way to real life. That's the way to true joy. That's the way to, to freedom. You want to be free? You want to live free? That's, that's the path to freedom. And it's for us so that when the enemy comes at us, and he does, he always does, he's going to, he's going to come to you and he's going to say, okay, maybe you will go to heaven when you die, but I'm going to make this life a living hell for you. And the way that he's going to do that is he's, he's going to book you on a guilt trip. And he's going to book you on a guilt trip, and that guilt trip is going to be all the lowlights of all the things that you've done. And he's going to remind you and, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna tell you, like, yeah, okay, well, remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? That's why, that's why it's not real for you. That's why you're unworthy of God's love. Or he's going to convince you on this guilt trip, you need to hide. 
You need to keep it hidden. You better not let it out. You better not let anybody know what you've done. You better hide it. You better not let it come out. And, and he'll try to convince you that if you just stuff it down, that if you just hide it, if you cover it up, that somehow it'll just go away. But it never does. Never does. The enemy will never quit. He will talk you down, and he will bring all the details of your past life back, and he'll convince you that that is your identity. The only way that you can walk free is to step into the light with God and say, look, I've done some things, and I've had some things done to me that have made me feel ashamed and worthless and damaged. But I know that the freedom pronounced over me and the message of my guilt being canceled is received. God, but you see, Satan wants to book you on a guilt trip. God wants to book you on a different trip. <laughs> and he wants to book you on a journey to the cross. He, he, wa- he wants to take you to the place of freedom. He wants to take you to the place where grace has canceled your guilt, where, where grace has changed your status. And it does. Grace cancels guilt, but it also redefines us. Grace cancels guilt. That's the first pathway to freedom. The second pathway to freedom is that grace redefines us from failure to family. Grace takes you from failure to family. God changes the narrative of our lives from us being a failure or a victim of the failures of someone against us. And he makes our story the story of sons and daughters in the family of God. Redefines your life from the inside out. Because of Jesus and what he's done, you put your faith and your trust in him and his finished work. You are a son of daughter of God. And the Bible says you are an heir to everything that God has. You've been written into the will. You've been invited into the plan and the purpose of God. You have a seat at the table. In 1 John chapter 1, it goes on to say, look, if you deny that you have sin, if you deny that you sin, what you're doing is you make yourself a liar. And it means that we walk away from the freedom that God is offering to us and we live eternally under the weight of guilt that Jesus has already canceled. But the next chapter in 1 John tells us that those of us who do confess our sins, that those of us who do walk in the light of what we've done or what's been done to us, God says, you are my children. Chapter three says, how great the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that's who we are. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul's writing to this church in this place called Galatia, and he says it this way. He says that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because we are sons and daughters, God sent his spirit into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. It's this intensely, insanely intimate term that we get to use with our heavenly father. And since you are no longer a slave, but his child, and since his child, God's made you an heir. So you see, in the garden where we find Adam and Eve, God's the one who's doing the calling. Where are you? Where are you? But now God comes through the work of Jesus where we're made new, when we confess our sins. And that same spirit that raised Jesus up from the grave comes into our hearts. And now God's not looking for us, but we're looking for God. And we're saying, you're my father and I can go to you. I could call you Abba, 
and I can walk toward you, and I can be with you. I have access to you in freedom, and I know I belong to you because I've been born again as a son or daughter, and I'm loved by God. Grace didn't just cancel the the guilt. Grace redefined me as a family member and a friend of Almighty God. This is so important. This is the pathway to freedom. This is the pathway to freedom from your shame. In in the New Testament, for the follower of Jesus, your primary identity, your true self. Now, here's what I mean by true self. We all have a way of being in the world. Here's what I mean by that. For for some of you, you come to a thing like this, and some of you, you've been in this community a while, and so this is a perfectly, like, natural environment for you, and so you just show up, and you're just, you're you, and that's how you kind of show up in a place. For others of you, maybe this is your first time, or, like, first or second time, and you're still not totally sure, like, even what this weird thing is that we're doing here. And, and so you have a certain way of being because you, you want to know people, but you don't know people. You want to connect, but you don't know, really know how to connect. So you have a, a way of being here that's different than, you know, maybe with your, with your family or your friends or people that you know better or environments that are a little bit more comfortable. Well, shame makes us not show up as our, as our true selves. Shame makes us show up as, as a, a, a false self. Um, but but what, what the follower of Jesus, your primary identity, what the, what the scriptures try to show us, that your true self is found in who you are in Christ, not in the ways that you've disrupted shalom. Here's what I mean by that. that shalom is this wholeness or this completeness, this way that God intended things to be. It's what we see in the garden. God intended us to be one with him, one with each other, one with creation, that's the shalom, this complete peace, this wholeness, this fullness. And sin disrupts and breaks all of that. And so we take that on as, well, that's who I am. I, I've just, I've, I'm broken. I'm broken with other people. I'm broken with God. I'm broken in, in his creation. But in the New Testament, people are taught first who they are in Christ because the more you know about who you are, the more you'll know what to do. And the first word about you from the scriptures is that you're created in the image of God and that you are crowned with glory and honor, a child of the divine. That's the first word in the New Testament about you. You're a child of God. You're you're created in the image of God. The second word is the honest, unvarnished truth about how we fall short. We all sin. We all disrupt this shalom that God intends for all things. And to grow in your spiritual maturity is to own up to this, to make amends with whoever you've wronged. And the final word about you is that the last word hasn't been spoken about you and your sin, that it's all been taken care of by Jesus, that peace has been made with God through the cross, that you've been restored and redeemed, reconciled and renewed. And as a Christian, this is what's so great about being a Christian, is that you're invited to live as if this is actually true. You're invited to live as a son or daughter of God. You're you're invited to live in this new identity, this this true identity. And you're invited to let it shape and mold and transform you into a centered people who bring the love and hope of Jesus into the world. Now, how does that happen? I'm going to give you real quick just three practical things where you can battle shame in your life. These are steps. These are things that you can do. 
the first way to battle shame in your, in your life is that you have to have courage. You have to have courage. You see, you neutralize shame when you are brave enough to bring your shame into the light. Because shame loves secrecy, darkness, and isolation, you fight it by being authentic about your experience. 1 John chapter 1 says this, this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You need courage to bring your sin into the light and watch shame lose its power. One of the greatest things for me has been my experience with people in my life with whom I share failures, sin, struggle. And because I love these people and because they love me and because we love Jesus, it's amazing to see that the the shame that I was afraid of, the embarrassment that I was afraid of, the, 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 the judgment that I was afraid of, it has no power. It's fake. It has no power. It's broken. Uh, if, I, if I let it live in the darkness, it has power. It controls me. I can't be authentic, which means I can't authentically love other people, which is the role that God has given us as his kids, to love one another. And if I, if I let shame keep me in the darkness, I can't live, it, I can't live that out. I can't live out of the, the love and that, I, that the Father has for me. So the first thing you need is courage. The second thing you need is compassion. Compassion is, is the human caring response to suffering for others and for yourself. When, when we are the ones in, in shame, we're unlikely to show compassion to others. It's amazing how when someone shares their story of brokenness, we can have compassion on them. We can move towards them in compassion. But when it's our own story, we often can't have compassion on ourselves. We're often very judgmental against ourselves. And having compassion means being willing to see and feel the pain and to suffer with. Compassion was at the core of Christ's way of being. If you look at the way that Jesus showed up in the world, compassion marks his ministry. And showing compassion towards yourself means that you change your inner dialogue. And, and a lot of you, you know what this is. You've, you've learned to talk to yourself um, in ways that reinforce your feelings of shame. You've picked up the narrative that the enemy has spoken to you or over you. And that's the way that you talk to yourself. If you want to learn compassion, you need to learn to discipline yourself to hear and to speak the kindness of God to yourself and rely on the truth of Scripture about your worth and God's grace in your life. So the first is courage, the second, compassion, and then lastly is, is connection. We are biologically hardwired for connection. And shame steals that from you and will make you either try to hide or to fake it with people. And because shame depends on secrecy and hiding, it loses power when you reach out, when you share your stories and realize you have the same struggle and failure that I have. The, the scripture says there's no sin that's common to, to the uncommon to man. So I, I have the sin, you, you have the sin, you have this failure, I have this 
failure. You, you realize that we are in this together. And when you are in shame, you, you have to learn to reach out. We, a lot of times we think there's just two kinds of people. There's people who give help and people who need help. But the reality is we are both kinds of people at the same time. And the way that we get connection, the way that we get the sense of love and belonging is through vulnerability. This is extremely difficult, I, I know. And the, because the problem with vulnerability is that you have to show people who you really are. And the problem with that is that so many of us are ashamed of who we are. And so because we're ashamed of who we are, our natural thing is to do what Adam and Eve do. I'm going to go hide in this bush over here, hope nobody finds me. But the way that we break the power of shame is our vulnerability with one another. This is where it gets scary. I get it. But this is where you find healing. This is where, this is where the, the power that breaks shame comes from. This is ultimately where we look to Jesus. In the, in the scriptures, I would just encourage you to, to really, really look at, at Jesus. Not just kind of glance over it and be like, oh, yeah, that's a story. That's kind of cool. I saw what he did there. He fed some people. He made that guy get up and walk. That guy had a weird skin disease, and he healed him. That, that's, that's cool. Jesus does some great stuff. I'm saying, like, really, really, really look. Stare intently at the person of Jesus and how he treats people, how he moves towards them. In, in Mark 10, he has this encounter with this young man, and the Scripture says Jesus looked at him. It says looking at him loved him. In the pages of the New Testament, Jesus is trying to be heard above our inner monologue, our inner monologue of shame that, that always uh, says you're, you're, you're broken, you're not good enough, you're unworthy, you're on the outside. If anybody finds out, you're done, you're ruined. And what Jesus, all through the scriptures, all through the New Testament, what he's trying to do is he's trying to speak a louder word over that voice of shame saying, no, I see you. I see all of you, and I love you. I love you. When he goes to Zacchaeus, you know the story, Zacchaeus, a wee little man, wee little man was he, right? So Zacchaeus, is a, he's a tax collector, which is just an absolute brutal, like, scourge of society. He, he essentially steals money from people, um, and he has to climb up this tree to see Jesus because he's a, a short guy. And a lot of times... Short men already, like, struggle with shame. So I've heard. Not me, but <laughs> Connor tells me that. So. <clears throat> so Zacchaeus, I mean, he just, he's, he, he's got issues. He's up in this tree. And Jesus comes by, and what does he say to him? You. I want to be with you. I, I, I want to be with you, and I want to engage in one of the most intimate things that we can do in this society, and that's eat a meal together. Now, when you eat a meal together, most of you, you sit at a table like how you're sitting right now, and you sit across, and you might, like, if you like the person that you're sitting next to, you might, like, scoot your chair a little bit closer, maybe, like, your elbows touch a little bit, and you get, like, the kind of the, you know, the goosebumps feeling. You might do that a little bit. But in this context, when they would eat together, they would sit at like a very low table and they would recline on these kind of like couches thing. And they would literally like lay on each other. They would lean like you would put like you'd be eating like your head would be like right here, like leaned on me and I'd be leaned on them like the next person. It's an insanely like now some of you tonight, you're going to go eat tacos and you're going to like lean on each other. 
with tacos. Um, is everybody picturing that right now? I am. So, so Jesus says that you're the person that everybody hates. You're the person who has an incredible amount of shame about what you do, even who you are as a person, like who you are physically as a person, there's shame there. And Jesus says, I want to be with you. I want to eat with you. He, the, the, there's the story of the Samaritan woman. This, this woman, she's had five different men in her life. The guy that she's living with right now, not her husband. And in our society today, which is very loose and liberal, that would still be like, dang, what's her problem? In this society, it's like a death sentence. So she comes to the well to draw water at the time of day that she does because she knows nobody else will be there. You see, shame makes you hide from other people. And she's at the well with all her shame and all her baggage and all her story. And Jesus engages in this amazing conversation with her. And at one point, he says something to her. He's like, because she starts to kind of get into this talk about worship and, you know, how there are, there's this mountain over here. And they, they say they're going to worship there. And, and one day a Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, you know what? The Messiah is here. And he's here with you. And you're going to worship too. And she does. She goes back into town. She's like, there's a guy who knows everything about me. And he talked to me like no one's ever talked to me. You got to come see him. There's the woman who's caught in adultery. Like busted caught. Not like, hey, there's a rumor about her. I mean, she's like caught. And they throw her in front of Jesus. And everybody gathers around. They start, they're holding stones. And they're like, hey, the law says she's done. She's guilty. She deserves death. Jesus bends down. He's like, all right, if any of you are without sin, you go ahead, you throw the first stone. And they all peel off. And Jesus says to her, in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her guilt, he says to her, does anybody here condemn you? Where is everybody? She says, they all split. He says, I don't condemn you. Go now. Live in freedom. What, what do you think Jesus is going to say to you when you're busted? When you're, when you're busted, busted, like her. When, it, when it's you, and you've been thrown out, all the evidence is stacked against you, and you're eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. What does he say to you? That place of shame, that place of like, oh, if anybody knew, if anybody knew what I did, what I looked at, what I've said, how I've treated, how I've lied, how I've stolen, the greed I have, the anger I have, the hate I have, if anybody knew, to that place right there in your life, what does Jesus say? I, I think one of my favorite stories, and with this word we're done, is, um, is of Peter. If you're not familiar with Peter in the scriptures. Peter is a, a, a follower of Jesus. He's one of the most intense, like loyal guys. I mean, Peter is like, he's just all like heart, no brains, doesn't think. Well, at the end um, of Jesus' ministry, he's arrested. I don't know if you know this about him, but he gets arrested and, um, and they're going to kill him. And he's on trial. And everybody who had been following Jesus at that time, everybody splits. And Peter is kind of close to where Jesus is on this trial, and he's sitting around this campfire, 
trying to keep warm, and he can, he can see, like not too far from him, he can, he can see, like across the courtyard, he can see Jesus in this trial, and they're just going after him. And, and there's three different people that come up to Peter, and they're like, hey, you're with Jesus, aren't you? You're one of his. You're, I can tell by your accent you're one of his. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm telling you, I don't know that man. And the rooster crows. And Jesus and Peter lock eyes. And Peter's out. He's done. He splits. Jesus is crucified. He's murdered in the most gruesome, public, horrific torture that man can think of at the time. After the resurrection, Jesus is, is, he goes and he finds Peter. Peter goes to hide. Shame makes you hide. And Peter says, I'm just going to go back to my old life. Jesus had called him out from being a fisherman and said, I want you to have a new life with me, a new purpose with me. Peter, he fails in this way, and he's like, I'm just going to go back. Forget it. I'm done. I know Jesus had called me to this new life, to this new purpose. I'm going back to the old thing. How many of us, our shame drives us back to the old thing? Peter goes back to the old thing. Jesus shows up on the shore. The guys aren't doing very well fishing, so Jesus gives a couple tips and techniques. <laughs> they catch a ton of fish, and Peter's like, I know who that is. And he swims in the shore. And now there's another campfire. You know when you, like, you, you, know when you smell a smell and it has this memory that's attached to it? I just wonder if like Peter, when he smells that campfire, it goes to the last time he sat at a campfire. And his memory there. And there's this beautiful, beautiful moment there um, where Jesus sits with him. And he's like, hey, would you like to have breakfast with me? <laughs> and he, and he asks Peter one question. He asks it three different ways. He says, Peter, do you love me more than all this stuff? M- more than the fishing and, the, and your old life? Do you love me more than all of that? You, you see, there, there are consequences to our failure. I mean, we're still talking about Peter's denial. That's still in the scripture. It's still a part of Peter's story. It doesn't get erased from the memory bank of humanity. And Jesus isn't sweeping things under the rug, but he's also not riveted to the consequences. We get locked in on the consequences of our sin. Jesus is is not riveted to them. He's really wanting to restore us in our identity. And he's saying grace has taken away the guilt, but grace has also redefined you as a friend and a family member of God Almighty. He invites Peter to breakfast, not to interrogate him, but to ask him, do you love me? Do you love me more than all this other stuff? Jesus had already paid for Peter's sin. It was done. It was finished. It was triumphed over all of it by his resurrection. But he knew that Peter was still marked by the shame. And what Jesus wanted to do at breakfast that morning and what Jesus wants to do tonight is to redefine him and redefine you. What is Jesus saying to you tonight? He's saying, look, I know about the past. I know what you've done. I know what was done to you, and I know how ashamed you are because of it. I know how it's defined you. I know how it's made you think that that's who you are, someone who's broken, who's damaged, who's unworthy. And Jesus says, that's not who you are. You are a beloved son and daughter. And the question tonight is the same question that Peter got. As Jesus is saying, do you love me more? Do you love me more? 
do you love me more than all that other stuff out there? And if your answer is, yeah, I do, then he says, that's awesome. Because I want you to be a leader in my church. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to be a part of my mission in this world. You will not live defined by shame. You will live defined by your Savior. So get off the guilt trip and get on a journey to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, God, just your, your mercy tonight. It really is um, your mercy, and it really is amazing grace even to have your word. And God, I just thank you for your presence here tonight. God, I thank you that you um, have not only given us an, an answer for how we deal with our guilt and our shame, but God, you've given us a, a pathway of, of freedom. God, you've provided for us that which we could never provide on our own. And God, so many of us in this room, myself included, have tried so many different ways to cover up the shame, to deal with the shame, to to drink it away, to, to try to buy it away with stuff, to try to fill it away with, with relationship or any other thing, God, that just gets propped up there. We've tried it all only to leave us feeling more shame. And so, God, tonight, would you bring freedom? God, would you, would you bring freedom to us, God, that we would not walk in our guilt and our shame, but, God, we would walk in your amazing grace. Jesus, that's why we sing. That's why we lift our voices now. We love you. It's in your name we